0: seeing how well you're doing and providing that feedback on a regular basis that's where you get people excited
1: this is the sparkcast a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity technology and business of cg i'm your host marina antunes always come easily to Alain Chesnay, something he partially attributes to genes. That ease has lent itself well to his career, helping him navigate studies in math and science, and eventually computing. Working with groundbreaking computer scientist Henri Gouraud greatly impacted the trajectory of Alain's career, in part by introducing him to computer graphics. Alain has devoted his career to innovation and research, and some of his achievements include the development of Maya, a tool that is now widely used in the CG industry, as well as the development of Transpotter, a predictive analytics tool for social media. In this conversation with Alain, he shares insight into his career, including his work with SIGGRAPH and how he played an instrumental role in the launch of Sigraph Asia, He also shares tips on being an effective leader and some insights about emerging trends he is most excited about. Here's our conversation with Alain Chesnay. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your young years as a youth in France. What were
0: you into as a kid? Okay, so basically I didn't grow up in France. I grew up in the United States.
1: In New York, right?
0: Right, which is why I don't have your typical French accent. So my family moved to New York when I was two years old. So I learned both French and English at the same time, which makes me perfectly bilingual. And it was really interesting to go and be able to do that. And it's been very funny throughout my career where... To give you an idea is when I did my graduate studies, I did some uh, research work at the University of Newcastle, and I had arranged to fly out to Newcastle. They had a brand spanking new IBM 370 that had just been delivered and nobody was on it. So I figured, great, I have these massive calculations that I can't find a computer powerful enough to run my calculations in my university. But you, yeah, the University of Newcastle just had this new computer and the students wouldn't arrive till October. So I flew out in the month of June to spend the summer there on their new computer, putting it through its paces with the uh, massive calculations I needed to do. I had arranged everything through email. OK, I had never actually spoken to anybody at the university and somebody was supposed to pick me up. At the airport, and I get off the plane and I see somebody who looks like your stereotypical British professor, you know, complete with the worn tweed jacket and everything. And it was just great to look that must be the person. So I walked up to him and go, like, okay, um, are you from the university? And he goes, Yes, and continues looking. And I go, Okay, are you here to pick somebody up? And he goes, Well, yes, I am, and continues looking. And so I told him, I, go, I think I may be the person you're looking for. He goes, no, I'm looking for a Frenchman. <laughs> so where this accent just basically, you know, they saw the French name coming from the University of Paris. And so obviously I had to have a French accent and that just completely blew everything away. So.
1: I was going to ask because I did notice that you had studied at the International School, the United Nations International School in New York, and I right. wasn't quite sure how that had come into your life. So again,
0: you know, I grew up in New York, went to public school until my mother got hired by the United Nations International School as a math teacher. You know, because she trained as a math teacher and then actually worked in the cultural services at the French Embassy for the beginning of her career in uh, New York. And then got hired by the United Nations International School, of course, her her degree is in math. So it was sort of interesting working at the cultural services in the French embassy in New York and not using her scientific background at all. So she was very happy to get into the United Nations School. And one of the perks we got as children of the faculty was that we got to go there. So... It was an amazing school.
1: With your mother being a mathematician, was math something you were always into?
0: Math is something I've always been good at. It's, you know, I think there's something to heredity there because I, you know, when I look at math, math has always seemed obvious to me. It just made sense. And there was a period in my life. So in sixth grade, I missed a good part of the school year because I got very sick I contracted a disease called encephalitis, which basically had me paralyzed for several months. So I couldn't go to school and missed out a lot of the school year. And what had happened that year was my teacher was a new grad. She had just graduated very young, totally driven teacher. And I got back to school. So i missed everything from, you know, the beginning of the year through roughly the month of February is when I got back into school. Okay. And I was so far behind everybody else. And, you know, as an 11 year old, I was panic stricken at the idea that I might be left back because I missed so much of the school year. So she had an unbelievable approach to teaching in that She taught us all about say Greek mythology, tying it into math, okay? And everything fit together, where we learned about philosophy, we learned about mythology, we learned why it made sense and how all this fit into a mathematical description and it wasn't separate subjects, they were all tied together. And she was wonderful at the way she explained this. And one of the things she would do was every Friday, she would give us a brain teaser. So the principle behind the brain teaser was you would get a question where you had enough math in terms of what you learned through sixth grade to be able to solve it. But you had to be clever in terms of understanding what you could use to be able to solve the problem. So to give you an idea, one of the problems she gave, and it's very funny because I still give this to my employees every now and again and take sadistic pleasure in pointing out I was able to solve this when I was in sixth grade. So you should be able to solve this too. And the idea is there are two numbers N and P such that N is equal to 225 times P. And the constraint is that N is composed only of the digits one and zero. What are the smallest N and P greater than zero that satisfy this this constraint? And the key thing is in sixth grade, you have enough math if you think it through to be able to solve it. And I did. So it was one of those where I, I looked forward to every Friday, where this was something where there were several in the class that would compete ferociously to try and figure this out and be the first one to hand in a proper response on Monday. And it was, it was actually pretty cool. So that developed my love for math and ended up getting so good at it. By the end of the year, we got called into the principal's office and my parents had coached me said like, look, you know, We know what this is probably going to be about. You've missed a good part of the school year. You probably don't have what it takes to be able to go and graduate successfully. We know you've tried, we know you've worked hard at it, but you know, don't look at this as a failure. Look at this as an opportunity to be able to go and learn. So went in and was really bummed about it, you know, going into the principal's office to figure out you know, what they were going to go and tell me. And it turned out that that wasn't quite what he wanted to tell me. Basically, I'd aced all the math parts to such a point that they put they wanted to put me into what's called the special progress classes in the uh, New York public uh, education system and put me into SP2, which is where you'd skip a grade. Math is all about detecting patterns. And the patterns for me were obvious. It just, I couldn't understand that people couldn't figure math out. It was just like, but it's so easy. And my friends would look at me and go, sure, for you, not for us. So (laughs) it was kind of interesting. So that was where the love for math developed after I graduated ninth grade. Then my mother got hired at the United Nations International School. So rather than going to the Bronx High School of Science, which I had entered and was planning to go to, it was so much easier to get driven into school by my mom every day, rather than have to commute an hour and a half each way to get the Bronx High School of Science. So I decided to go to uh, UNIS rather than go to the Bronx High School of Science. Now, little did I know what the UN school would teach me, which was about living in a diverse world where I took that diversity for granted, Okay. And that was something that served me throughout my career, because one of the things you learn is to never take your own, uh, say, biases for granted. You understand that you have your own, that everybody has them, and that you need to go and be open to different ways of looking at how problems get solved and what you need to do. And for everybody who went to the so United Nations International School, this was just such a normal part of life that all of us, and it was very funny because you know, we're still all of my high school friends are still some of my best friends today. Okay, we built up such tight bonds because people coming from all over the world, then once we graduated high school, we spread out all over the world to go to different universities all over the place. And we all suffered through the same thing, was to realize like, oh my God, other people are so biased. We have no idea. We had no idea that the world was like this. So it was a bit of a culture shock getting to university and realizing that we had lived in a cocoon where we didn't realize how good it was until we left it.
1: Clearly, you knew you were good at this thing and you knew you loved math in your mind what did you want to do with this passion for math?
0: So basically, I so I liked, actually, it wasn't just math. Okay. I liked drawing. So graphics was a natural for me. So I had decided when I graduated high school that I would become an architect because I could use my creative skills in terms of drawing and my mathematical skills to be able to go and create. And then I discovered research in, in college and realized like, forget this architecture thing. I wanna do research. So it was really interesting because there I had some great professors in college who pushed me harder than I had ever been pushed before and encouraged me to take on things that were much more difficult than what I would have normally tried. And why? Because they identified that I was good at it and able to solve problems because I could intuit the actual mathematical structure of complex behaviors. And for me, I mean, it was literally obvious. It was, I I had a hard time explaining to people how I could solve these things. It was, I just see the answer. It's just, this is how it's all built up. And what was interesting, I mean, did this all the way through college, I mean, to the point where when I got to doing my graduate degree, and was preparing my doctorate. I was a fairly cocky young student at the time. So when my thesis advisor asked me, you know, what I wanted to do, and I said, What's the hardest problem you got? He's going, Do you really want to take it on? And I said, Yeah, I want to. Yeah, this is, I want to feel challenged. I want something that I can stick my teeth into, and that isn't going to be just a humdrum, obvious thing to do. I said, okay. There's an open problem in computer performance evaluation that nobody's been able to solve in the past 30 years. Do you want that one? I said, yeah, I'll take that and regretted it for the first two years of my uh, graduate studies because I very quickly understood why it had been an open problem for 30 years. It It was one of the hardest things I had ever tried and everything i tried failed every approach and it was a really humbling experience to go through this where you know what i was trying to do was to try and model the behavior of distributed databases in the presence of locking now yeah i'll try to keep this at a level where yeah i'm not going too far in the weeds but basically all the mathematical models we use to do a performance evaluation, always assume that the processes that you're looking at are mutually independent, that you can model them independently of what's happening elsewhere. The problem with locking is that each process is selectively locking the assets that it needs to have and any other uh, process coming in, trying to access those items will have a probability of not finding it depending on whether you've locked it. So it was tightly coupled. It failed all the assumptions that we made in every previous model. So I couldn't use any of the existing mathematical models. Though so I tried, but all of them failed. And it was to the point where I ended up eliminating every approach that I could think of until there was only one left that every mathematical treatise told you could not work. But I heard the hell with it, I should just try it anyway. It's the worst that can happen is that it won't work either. And the funny part was that it did, and I didn't know why. That was one of the most interesting parts where my first papers in this domain said, I have results, they're too good to be true, And I don't understand why, but they work. It was really, really interesting because when I gave the presentations, I would go to scientific conferences and show my results. And typically what would happen is you'd have one of the key scholars in the field would raise their hand at the end and go, well, Mr. Sinead, that's a really interesting approach let me ask you a few questions and you go, okay, this is going to be bad because I don't have the answers. So what, you know, typically, you know, what I would get was, okay, you showed us the results comparing your approach to a simulation and you're always within the confidence intervals. So this is too good to be true. And what they typically do is say, I assume that these are your best results Would you kindly show us what your worst results look like? And what they didn't know was that what I had published were actually my worst results. So it was really interesting to say, okay, the reason I'm presenting this and the reason this paper got accepted was because these are my worst results. We're always within confidence intervals, which means that there's something happening mathematically that I don't understand. This is working when it shouldn't. And there's got to be an explanation.
1: you come from a place where you were always succeeding okay. and never failing to a place where you're failing all the time, but you pick yourself up, you pick yourself up every time and keep going.
0: Right. No, one of the things that's really interesting is when we say it's a failure, it's it's not a failure. What it is, is you're eliminating one possible solution and saying, okay, this approach doesn't work. So once you've eliminated everything, the only thing that's left is what the solution has to be, which is the approach I ended up taking, which, okay, this other approach is described in all the textbooks. It's something you should never use because it never works. And I eliminated everything else. So there was nothing else I could try. So why don't I just try it? And, oh, this works. It shouldn't. Like, why the heck is this happening? So it was a really, really interesting you know, epiphany for me to go and say, okay, there must be some mathematical reason for this that I haven't yet identified. And once we understood what it was, it was actually pretty interesting because it opened up a whole new class of problems that this approach could solve. So we were able to identify what were the necessary conditions to be able to apply this technique that in the general case doesn't work. But when you had sufficient preconditions, was guaranteed to work. So it was really, really interesting because it was one of those where, you know, until I found it, I was getting to the point where I'm going like, you know what? You shouldn't have been so cocky. Maybe you should have chosen something a little less challenging and guaranteed that you'd actually get results.
1: You you clearly worked on this project for I'm assuming a number of years from the sounds of it. Research seemed to be something that you're very passionate about. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you got pulled away from research and into the tech and development side of things. Right.
0: So basically, what happened is I got hired after you know a little bit after that. So I first worked at CNRS, which is the French National Scientific Research Center. So it's a public research body. Okay. So think of it as what NFS would be in the States if it actually did research rather than just fund it. So here, you know here, in France, there is a body that's funded by the French government to do public research. And that's what I got hired to do. And when I was there, I had met with Nicolas Negroponte, so the founder of the Media Lab. At MIT and had just been blown away by his vision, what he wanted to do with the architecture machine group, which is what he was working on. I mean, he was working on VR and, you know, just high level computer graphics and things that just really excited me. So I loved visiting his lab and he got hired to open up a research center in Paris. When the socialist government came to power under Mitterrand, so when President Mitterrand got uh, got elected, one of his first acts was to fund a research center to do research in computer science for the good of mankind. So Nick reached out to me and asked me whether I might go and work for him. And I had tried so hard to get into CNRS. I'm going, you know, Nick, I really like you a lot, but I'm not leaving CNRS. It's going, okay, what if I threw in a VAC 780 as your personal computer? Now, VAC 780 just to go and set the, you know, what this was at the time, it was considered to be like the top-notch computer that every researcher wanted. And typically you would share it with about 10 other researchers. And he was offering to give me one as my personal computer if i came to his lab so i said yes so it was you know really interesting i was easily bought So ended up going there and worked on some amazing projects. So one of the first projects that I worked on there was working with a researcher called Harold Goldberger, who's doing amazing research in terms of building up diagnostic aid systems for Sub-Saharan Africa. So the problem in Sub-Saharan Africa is that, yes, you train doctors, but they don't want to work in the bush they want to work in the big cities and get paid the big bucks. And, you know, not surprised it's, it's a long and strenuous task to get your degree as a, you know, as a medical doctor. So there was a problem out where doctors were needed the most, which is where they weren't. So the approach was, and this is, you know, thinking we started working on this in 1981 we were looking at building a portable computing system with AI built into it that could do diagnostics at the level of what a trained medical practitioner could do. So not quite what a medical doctor could do, but what a trained nurse could do. Okay, So basically ask all the right questions and be able to go and Diagnose what the most likely cause was. And we worked with Doctors Without Borders to go and build up the scientific foundation of it. And it was an amazing product. So we the, you know, the project was successful in that it actually solved the problem. What we ended up finding, though, was that computers were so expensive at the time. The computers that we built this on were, I mean, it had something like 64K of memory. Okay, that's what it was. That's what we were working with. Small LCD display. Okay, that was it. You know, battery power, and we had to go and recharge them out in the field where batteries weren't necessarily readily available nor was stabilized current available. So there were some key issues, but the major problem with what we built, though it worked, the price of one of these computers was about half the price of a Jeep. And any developing country would rather buy a Jeep than two of these computers because it was more versatile. And you could do so much more with it. So, though we were a technical success, we were a total failure in terms of adoption of the system. The system worked, but nobody wanted to pay for it because it was too expensive. Today, I can build that same thing for under $10. And so that was a harsh reality to have to learn that it wasn't good enough to just solve the technology part. We actually had to solve the business part to be viable. So since this was a political system that had been set up by the socialists, when the socialists lost power in 1987, the first thing the right wing did was to cancel our funding. So at that point, I decided, okay, do I go back to CNRS and continue writing grant proposals and doing public research? And I decided, you know what? I don't like writing grant proposals. I'd rather just do the research. And the way I can do the research better is to start up my own company. So literally the same year, my wife and I decided that we would have a kid. So we had our first son and we started up our company to do ray tracing software. That was the first in Europe to go through. And it was a pretty interesting run. So 1986, we built that up and that's how I moved over to industry rather than doing public research. And I've never gone back.
1: Can we talk a little about Alias and and your involvement there? How did you come on board? Because I know you went on board in 93, and you guys worked on some really interesting projects that some people might not be aware of that they're using every day.
0: So TDI, which was, so there were three major companies that started out in the very early 80s doing computer graphics. I had started out my own company in '86. I ended up selling my company to a much bigger company called Advent in 1991. And having gone through the whole process of the acquisition of the transfer of knowledge, and moving everything over, I was much richer but looking for something else to do. And it turned out that the CEO of TDI was a researcher that I had actually done an internship with at Thomson very early on in my graduate studies. So I knew him well, and he had been interested in the whole process of the acquisition of my own company and reached out to me to see if I would consult for them as they were in discussions with Wavefront Technologies based in Santa Barbara for an acquisition by Wavefront. I was brought on board and for actually a very funny reason. So the funny reason was that, first of all, I speak English like this, that I understand American culture and... Could speak to our counterparts at Wayfront, surprising the heck out of them to hear like, "What is this Frenchman who speaks without a French accent?" And so that I was that Frenchman negotiating on behalf of TDI for the acquisition, and I thought, okay, you know, this is just, yeah, it's a short-term contract; it'll take us the six months that it takes to go through all the haggling and doing everything, and they asked me to continue working for the the acquiring company to go and set up a plan for how we would merge. Say, okay, so you're not a TDI employee, you're here as a consultant, you've learned what we do at Wavefront, why don't you come and suggest how we could best merge? So I did that And I expected, okay, once that's over, then I'll move on and do some other consultancy job. And they said, yeah, why don't you stay on and just run our rendering team? Because you're obviously good at rendering. You've written a ray tracer. You've written a real-time renderer. So what became IPR with another key uh, developer at TDI, which was just amazing stuff because we had both independently created the same software so me in my own company called studio base 2 the other person in tdi had built it at tdi using the same SIGGRAPH paper which is what we'd been you know inspired by so it was a 1986 paper on parametric ray tracing where we both saw like oh my god if i use this so this remember before you had the prevalence of high speed GPUs available. One of the key issues we had was that when you were tuning your shaders, okay, typically what you do is a test render. Your test render would take, you know, anywhere between 20 minutes and two hours, depending on the resolution. And you tweak little bits and change the description of your shader. Go off, have a coffee break, wait for it to render, look at the results, and "Eh, that isn't quite what I wanted. Tweak again and do it over again. So it's a very tedious process. And both of us saw that by using the approach of parametric ray tracing, where what we did is we calculated all of the intersections for first uh, first pass rendering and saved the geometry away. So we had all the normals, all the points of intersection, everything. Set up in a buffer that we could then iterate over so we would just calculate the resulting shader function on the pixels that were being modified, nothing else. And both of us had the exact same optimization I mean it was hysterical when you know we you know when I actually joined TDI full time and saw what my colleague had built you know like, that's exactly my code. I did the exact same thing. and we were. You know, there was a couple of optimizations that he had found that I hadn't found and others that I had found that he hadn't found. So we then merged them together and that became one of the best-selling products that TDI had, which was IPR, so the interactive photorealistic render. Two years after TDI got acquired by Wavefront, then SGI came and acquired both Wavefront and Alias Research here in Toronto. And the interesting thing about that is what had happened is there was a new upstart company from Montreal. Okay, so the key computer graphics companies at the time were based in Canada because the Canadian government had funded research in universities into computer graphics as a strategic initiative to go and build up the Canadian economy. And that paid off big time, okay? If you look, be it Softimage, Alias Research, okay, Vertigo, uh, Side Effects, all of these companies are companies that evolved from that original funding in the university systems up here 40 years ago. And it made such a difference in terms of what we did. So the folks at Softimage, started up about five years after Alias, Wavefront, and TDI started up. And the advantage that they had is that Silicon Graphics was well-established at the time, and OpenGL was really good. So they were able to profit from it much more than any of the original packages had been, because we didn't have OpenGL when we first started so basically, Softimage ate our lunch it was, you know, basically what was happening. And Microsoft had just bought Softimage. So there was a panic at Silicon Graphics going like, oh, my God, everybody's going to move to follow Softimage to Windows. We need to do something. So they acquired Alias and Wavefront and TDI since we had all merged, plus parts of Vertigo that we... All you know also acquired plus other companies that we had acquired along the way, and gave us a new project. When the key thing about the project was, it was time to rewrite our code because our code was already two years, uh, ten years old, and it was spaghetti code. It was much more effective to go and step back and say, "Okay, if I was designing a new system from scratch." I now understand better what the real problems are and I can architect it much better than I could have five years ago. So that was the key uh, genesis behind um, you know, Maya. Maya was designed to display soft image. That was what we were doing. So what was fun is we released Maya One in February of 1998 and then we headed down to SIGGRAPH in the summer. And there was a lot of anticipation about whether we might decide to make an effort to port to Windows. Nobody knew that the port was ready by the time we got the Sigraph. OK, it had been kept so secret. We only told the rest of the engineering team like two weeks before SIGGRAP Said, by the way, you're all getting Windows devices on your desktops because we now support Windows. I went, what? but we didn't write any Windows codes so and you didn't. We have five guys in Seattle who are absolutely br- you know, brilliant Windows engineers who did the port and it works. So that was a lot of fun because the announcement was, you know, we hear you and by the way, it's shipping today. It was like total silence. You could hear the jaws hitting around. It was the most fun I've ever had in my career. Just a
1: rock star, total rock star moment on stage at great. (laughs) And for those that might not like grasp just like the enormity of this, like 1998 is still a time where we're nascent in the whole CG industry. And you were, were working on, you know, graphics and computer graphics, even like for 10 years, even before that, what were those tools being used for? Who was using these tools that you were creating?
0: Well, basically, Hollywood was the biggest consumer of what we were doing. So, basically, this was the boom of special effects in the movies, Jurassic Park, all the rest, where all of a sudden you realize that for uh, you know tens of millions of dollars, you can make a movie with artificial dinosaurs that people thought were real, okay, and that people would pay big bucks to go to see these movies. So, all of a sudden, there was this whole movement. To say, okay, we need software to go and be able to go and produce these images at scale for a full length feature movie. And the think, you know, the frame rate for a, you know, a feature film is you know, was at the time 24 frames per second. So for every second of animation, knowing that a typical movie is about two hours, so think of the number of frames you have to calculate and fully render. This was an enormous undertaking, and what was happening was that people invest the companies who were doing this in you know based in Hollywood, you know the ILMs of the world were investing in Silicon Graphics as the best computer that you could do graphics on because it had a real-time component that. PCs couldn't match at the time. Now, the key reason we ported to Windows was because I'd done a basically a study where I was looking to see how quickly do we grow in terms of capacity, in terms of Unix workstations, which are what the Silicon Graphics machines were. And if you're familiar with Moore's law, it basically says that the computing power of your you know your machine will double every 18 months for the same price okay now that was the law that uh you know unix workstations so these dedicated unix workstations that everybody was using for feature length movies were following what people hadn't noticed was that there was a different dynamic happening in the Windows world. Now, what was happening there was that people were discovering that you could play video games. And this was, again, so you think late 90s, this is where the boom of the video game market started. Before, we we were just getting the first game engines that you could actually use, but PC gaming was what interested me the most because I saw how we could apply it to to what we were doing with Maya. And the key thing that I was measuring there was that because you could swap out the graphics board on a PC without changing anything else, and you would immediately get the benefit of the new graphics board, we were seeing doubling in speed every six to eight months rather than every 18 months, which is what we're seeing in the Unix world. Because in the Unix world, what we were all doing was soldering the graphics subsystem to the motherboard. So you couldn't just swap out the graphics. You had to buy a whole new machine. And an SGI, a top-of-the-line SGI machine was several hundred thousand dollars a piece. So you wouldn't. Okay. So for me, it was clear. And you know what I did was to go to my executive team and say, here's what I'm projecting within two years. every." single company doing high-end computer graphics will switch to Windows because that's the only cost-effective way of doing it. And if we wanna survive as a software provider, we have to port to Windows. And I wanted to do that while we were building the Irix version. So ask for a budget to be able to hire the best Windows engineers I could find in Seattle because that's where I could find them and do this in secret because our principal competitor was a Microsoft. So we couldn't let Microsoft eat on what we were doing. So what we had done is we bought a company called Applied Geometry that was specialized in NURBS libraries, okay? So these are mathematical representations of curved services and they were based in Seattle. So the official story was that since my degree was in math and you needed to have a high level of math to understand the, the whole NURBS stuff, that I was put in charge of applied geometry and was flying out to Seattle like literally every two weeks to be able to keep tabs on the secret team that we had there that was actually doing the Windows port and telling Microsoft that we had decided to go and port our NURBS library to Windows, which is why we needed support in terms of the graphics libraries. And all of this was true. We were betting the shop on the success of Maya. And we didn't know at the time whether we would be successful.
1: You always have a an eye on the future and what's upcoming. And that's also true. Like I was very, very surprised when I saw that you also co-founded Trendspotter. Yep. At the beginning of social media, like when social media was just this thing that nobody really knew what it was. Twitter was this thing that's like, what is this?
0: I was working at a company where we built a tool called SceneCaster. So it was the metaverse. It actually existed in Uh, on Facebook, okay, so it was a Facebook app where you could build 3D spaces and teleport between these 3D spaces and share them with your friends in 2007, okay? That company got bought out by one of our biggest uh, clients, a company called Configure One, uh, right at the end of 2009. So come 2010, Neither my CEO nor I went over with the new company. Basically, they kept the developers who would be able to do that. They already had a CEO and a CTO, so they didn't need to. It was time for us to come up with a new idea. And what was really funny was very soon after the sale of Scenecaster, we were sitting in a Starbucks, literally thinking about, okay, what do we do next? And Mark turns to me and goes, hey, you've got a good math background. We go, well, yeah. I said, do you use Twitter? I said, well, yeah, I do. He said, how do you make sense of what's happening on Twitter? And I said, well, you know, I go look at it a couple of times a day and, you know, most of it is pure garbage, but there's always an interesting tweet that I like to see. And he said, couldn't you come up with an algorithm to figure out what's interesting there? And that was the genesis of TrendSpotter. And, you know, and I basically thought about it And what's really interesting is I started posing the equations to see how would I describe this. And I was blown away once I set it up in equation form, where I recognized the same problem that I had solved earlier for my thesis. It was the same issue with the tight correlation. So things go viral because other people are sharing them. So all of the tools that you would normally do fall apart. And guess what? The math that I approved during my PhD thesis would solve this actually applied directly. There are two characteristics of social media in terms of how viral content propagates. The first thing is that though there is a very large number of people participating, the actual population is finite. And that poses a certain number of constraints in terms of, you can't keep on growing along an exponential. At some point, you'll taper off. So the curve that describes your growth is called the sigmoid. So it's an S-shaped curve where it takes a while to start and then people start sharing it and it goes and accelerates until you've saturated the number of people who could reshare it. And then it starts tapering off and it reaches some level later. So the key thing is I knew from all you know, the theory that describes all viral growth that this was a sigmoid. So the key thing that I could do was come up with a model that would let me find the parameters of the sigmoid to predict how high it would go and how soon. So the key problem became to go and see, how can I tell whether something is likely to go viral based on the initial growth curve and only do the curve fitting if I'm already pretty damn sure that it will go viral. Okay. So that was, I'm simplifying, but that was the essential approach in terms of what we did. So built out the math and you know the good news was that AWS or Amazon Web Services existed. So I could build out the system to do this with as many computers as I needed. And then iterated on that. I mean, there was a lot of work in terms of tuning the algorithm so I could do them in real time. And then got it to the point where I could predict within 15 minutes of first post, whether or not a given URL would go viral and how big that virality would be. And the key market that we looked at was advertisers. So it was basically to give advertisers an edge in terms of what they were bidding for ad placement so, if you saw that a given New York Times article was going to go massively viral, and would get, you know, would get say ten million eyeballs within six hours, it was in your best interest to go and up the bids on that because your return on investment would be huge. That was the whole story behind Trendspotter. So.
1: That's amazing. So do I have you to thank for like viral hashtags?
0: One of the key services we gave people. So to give you an idea, what was really funny was that we had all the major publishers were using TrendSpotter, okay, to go and track how well they were doing and to be able to reinforce the virality of their content. So say, you know, we had publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal were all clients of ours. Okay. And they weren't using it to go and buy ad space. They were using it to sell ad space because now they could use this to go and say, we predict that this article will go to 10 million views within 24 hours. All you have to do is just pay up here and you can ride that wave. So that was a really, really interesting approach to go and see that we could help the advertisers and the publishers to get ads and more, you know, and get higher bids on their ads because there was a higher confidence as to how big that wave would be. So it was really, really interesting to go and do that,
1: and today, you're still selling ads.
0: I'm still selling ads, but now I'm at you know moved over to Amazon where I'm working on audiovisual ads where we're doing the metrics and using the same math that I had at Trendspotter and you know for my doctoral thesis to be able to help advertisers bid more effectively it's basically help you understand how all of this content that we're doing i mean one of the key things that people may not know about amazon so this is what we published in our latest earnings uh, reports is that we're currently the third largest ad placement service in the world behind Google and Facebook, okay? It's a $30 billion business for us. It's huge in terms of what's happening and we're doing it at Amazon scale. The key thing is now I'm within Amazon so I can use our internal services to scale this at the level I need to, to be able to provide all of these tools to allow people who want to advertise with us To have better confidence in what they're investing in and get a sense of what their return on investment is. Okay. You know, basically, we're looking at things like predicting if you place an ad now on this, you know, this property that is an Amazon property, this is what you can expect to get in terms of sales as a result. So the ROI calculation becomes much easier because we're giving you the predictive tools. And again, they're similar to the tools that we built at TrendSpotter. They're looking at different things because we're actually selling that ad space to our clients. But it's the same math.
1: Math, you gotta oh, yeah. love it. Oh yeah. <laughs> One of the other aspects of your your life and your career that we haven't touched on yet and that I wanted to talk about is SIGGRAPH because yep. it has been a really key part of your life and your career when did you first find out about SIGGRAPH and when did you first become involved
0: okay so basically I encountered the chair of the Paris SIGGRAPH chapter when I was living in Paris and you know, working so this is when I had my first startup and this was actually actually no I met him before I actually started up my company because I met him in 85 okay so I became a member of the Paris chapter, meeting up with people who liked me. So what I was doing at the time when I was working for Negroponte, I was building a ray tracer on my spare time. So this was, I was working with a group of uh, teachers, you know, professors at a local art school who had a ray tracer that was written in Fortran and was slow. And I looked at it and since they were using my VAX at night and using up all the available CPU cycles, I got a little bit upset with the students because I couldn't get my research done. So went to go and see. So so the guy behind Guru Shading, okay? Had the office next to mine in this research center. And he was the one who'd introduced me to these, you know, professors and their students, and they were doing amazing stuff, but they had a really slow ray tracer. I allowed them on my VAX, they were using that VAX, you know, basically they would start up like at 5 p.m., stay all night long, use every available CPU cycle. And then I would get my VAX back in the morning to do my research and realize that the batch jobs that I was running at the time. Couldn't complete anymore because the kids were using up everything. I had nothing left. So I got a little bit upset at that. And again, I was a young grad at the time. So I had left the university uh, like literally just a couple of years earlier and still remembered what it was like to go and steal cycles on other people's computers because that was the only way I could get my job done. And so I went to CLE and said, oh, you know, I've got a problem with your students. I'm going to have to kick them off. I can't get my research done. And remember that at the time, most of my research was focused on performance optimization and modeling and understanding how computers work. So I said, look, look, yeah, you graduated fairly recently. Like, Take pity on these kids. They don't have access to the computing resources that you've got. There's gotta be some middle ground where you can do your research and they can do their computer graphics. And, you know, sure, i was soft hearted. So I said, yes, said, sure. Okay, let me look at this and see. And then what I realized was that their ray tracer wasn't fully optimized, and that I could do a better job if I rewrote their ray tracer in C and optimized the heck out of it. So that's what I did, basically rewrote it. Got a twenty-fold increase in speed, reduced the memory footprint completely, and really optimized it. And that's how I got hooked on graphics. It turned out that I'd never done graphics before, but now every time I do a test, rather than resulting in a big spreadsheet with lots of numbers, which is what all my research before then had been, I had a pretty picture, and that was fun. So it turns out that. Ended up uh, getting into a relationship with one of the students who was actually doing this. We ended up getting married. And so there was just a lot of things that happened at the same time. And I was pretty proud of the Ray Tracer that I built and what we were able to do with it. And started making movies at night after hours. So after my official research, I continued working. This is when I was much younger and didn't need to sleep all that much. So... This was a time where I reached out to the graphics community, and that's where I met Bernie Dresner, who was an amazing person in terms of introduced me to key people at SIGGRAPH and got me involved. And Bernie asked me, like, hey, you know, we need somebody to help us stuff envelopes as part of our marketing pitch for the SIGGRAPH chapter. Would you mind giving us a hand? I said, yes. And that's when I started volunteering. That was 1985. So way before I actually started up my own company and doing all of this, and I haven't stopped volunteering since. Right now, I serve on the Diversity, and, you know, Equity, and Inclusion Board, and I'm having a lot of fun doing that. And in 2023, I am going to be the International Resources Chair for SIGGRAPH Asia, going back to Sydney.
1: You also were key in incorporating SIGGRAPH Asia.
0: In 2004, when I looked, so we had gotten our, our finances under control, and I felt it was time strategically to look at where is growth. And what I was seeing is that there was so much activity happening on the Pacific Rim and specifically in you know Asia, including Australia and New Zealand, where so many interesting things were happening that I felt that there was a strategic opportunity to grow in Asia. So basically sent out a team to go and visit with the key volunteers in the SIGGRAPH community based in Asia to see, would you be willing to volunteer to help us set up an Asian event equivalent to what we do in North America every year. Now, this was at a time where SIGGRAPH only took place in the United States. We had to wait until 2011 before we actually moved up to Vancouver the first time. So really interesting to go and see how all this dynamic was taking place where my key thinking was that we should not be just a US organization. If I looked at our membership, our membership was bigger than that. So there was an opportunity in Asia that was ripe to go and take advantage of to go and build a successful conference. Now, coming back with the results of that marketing effort, my successor is the one who actually implemented the first SIGGRAPH Asia. So that was Scott Owen, who actually did that and did a great job of building that out. His vice president is the one, so Alan Rockwood is the one who was our first SIGGRAPH Asia Conference Advisory Board chair. But I was very much active within that and volunteered. Ended up becoming the, you know, the the ACM SIGGRAPH Executive Committee uh, liaison to the SIGGRAPH Asia Conference Advisor Group uh, later on and pushing the growth of SIGGRAPH Asia to become our fourth largest conference at ACM. So it's been a great success. I've been very happy to see how we've been doing that. and It's been a lot of fun also learning to deal with the different cultures where it was, again, using everything I learned at UNIS early on to be able to deal with the different cultures and not assume that every you know every country runs the way the U.S. works. I learned that one early enough on in my career.
1: It's clear to see the way that your career has spread over the years, how you're always looking for that other thing. You're not satisfied with what's just in front of you and what everyone else is looking at. Being
0: that noisy Frenchman living up here in Canada who always pointed out that, no, we're not all Americans, thank you. And what was really interesting to me was... When I got elected ACM president, it was the first time where there was only one member of the executive committee, the ACM executive committee, only one member actually lived in the States. Everybody else was from elsewhere. And I was the closest one not living in the States, living up here in Toronto, which is a stone's throw away. But everybody else was in Asia and Europe. And that was just a measure of how much had changed at ACM through being doggedly persistent and continuing to go and do things. So one of the key things I did when I became ACM president was to reach out to go to the CCF, so the Chinese Computing Federation. There was a huge uptick in terms of quality research papers coming from mainland China at that point. And we didn't have enough key volunteers within ACM from China. Very quickly, things shifted where I would go to China to go and see what they were working on because the change had happened so dramatically in terms of investing in universities and public research centers. Where now, if you look at any major conference, you have a very large number of the research papers that are published are coming from China. And I wanted us to recognize that, make it easier for Chinese nationals to be members of ACM. So what we did is we gave them a discounted rate. Any CCF member would automatically become an ACM member and would get all of our content electronically. There was a reason for that too, is I wanted to stop killing trees by sending paper copies of everything to all of our members. So, you know, we are computer scientists so
1: we should know how to use the web. We should be able to figure this out. What keeps you involved in SIGGRAPH? Like for you, what do you get out of it that has kept you a volunteer for 37 years?
0: You know, the key place that I invest in the most is the students. So what I do every year, it's I walk around SIGGRAPH with a Lego avatar of myself. And there's a fun story behind that as to how that came to be. But that came from helping a graduate student at USC with her thesis. So she had reached out to me to go and explain what she was doing and wanted me to go and review her thesis proposal. And I got very interested in what she was doing. So it started out as a... One hour conversation again, this is fairly normal at SIGGRAPH. It's those of us who are confirmed researchers, you always help out a student who asks for help. It's just normal. This is part of what volunteering is all about. You know, when I saw what she was doing, I realized that I could help her. So, what started out as a one hour conversation morphed into a tight collaboration for over a year, and she did amazing work. It was trying to see how you could use. 3D virtual worlds in a teaching environment to be able to get kids to create and create using 3D. And it was just amazing what she did. So she got her thesis with honors and well deserved to get it. And one of the things that she noticed when... Looking at my Facebook page was that at the time, pretty much every other post that I was sharing was something about a Lego kit that I got excited in. So she deduced that I was kind of interested in Legos that I am. Turns out her husband is a modeler in a gaming company. And you know, think of this. This is in what 2012, 2013 time frame. They happen to have two 3D printers in their garage, as one does. So as a thank you gift they designed this avatar as a one-foot Lego minifig designed after a picture of me and presented them to me at SIGGRAPH 2013. And what was hysterical was as I'm walking around SIGGRAPH with this Lego, you know, one-foot-tall Lego minifig, all the student volunteers came running up like one after another going, oh, that's so cool. Can I get my picture taken with them? And that became a SIGGRAPH tradition. And now every year, you know, the hundreds of student volunteers we have all want to get their pictures taken. And now 7,000 or so pictures later, we're still doing this. So it's been 10 years. I realized this year that this was his 10th SIGGRAPH. Aside from the COVID years, he's been to every single one since 2013. I'm surprised that he's still in one piece. Well, he's not. He's actually pretty much broken. But the key thing is he's 3D printed. So I am arranging with a company here in Toronto to have the broken parts reprinted so that we can make them better.
1: Gotta love it. The technology that lives on. I I wanted to ask you about, you know, leadership, because Mm -hmm. you've often led groups. You've been in leadership positions at ACM and SIGGRAPH. What sort of tips and best practices do you have for individuals that maybe are leading their first group or looking to get into a leadership position? For you, what works and what have you seen work and what tips would you give people?
0: Now, what I always look at in terms of encouraging people to step up is to give them feedback as to what they're doing well and where they need to improve, what they need to look at. And a lot of that has to do with Yeah, so I am a numbers guy. I, you know, math is my thing. So what I do is I measure everything. So say the developers who are working for me, so say in my teams now during my one-on-ones, one thing we do is we go over their numbers. So I look to see in terms of the latest sprints, how you know, compare it to the capacity you had, how much did you produce? And were you in line with what we expect? And if not, what can we change? And so I spend my time coaching them in terms of what they could do differently to perform better, okay? And always looking at it with the measures that are objective measures. So we look and say in your code reviews, how many revisions did you have on average of the code you submitted? So how many times did you have to iterate before it was good enough to check into the repo? Okay. And we measure that consistently. So a new developer. Okay. So somebody who is a new grad, I don't expect them to go and get their number of revisions down. Okay. They will be somewhere under two revisions on average but it'll be higher than 1.5, okay? Somebody who's been in this for a couple of years, I expect that number to come down because now they know better how to anticipate all of the common issues that other people will pick up in their code. And so we look at those and we see, how are we doing? How's it coming along? And we graph it. We look at it and see how it's going. And I coach my people on that to go and see, what can we do? You know, providing that constant feedback, I don't wait until the yearly performance reviews because it's too late then, okay? I want people getting their feedback on a regular basis where we're measuring everything and then we'll discuss, Yeah, you know, what's not going according to plan and what can we do to fix that so that there are no surprises, okay? What happens for people who work for me is, their you know, their yearly performance review is as expected because they've been getting that constant feedback all over the web. In my career, I've always hated working for managers who didn't give me that constant feedback. I don't want to wait for that yearly performance review. It's something that should be an ongoing conversation every week with the people who report directly to me. For them to grow in their career, they need that feedback from it so that we can talk about strategies and see how do we get there. When I put people on performance improvement plans, my goal is to improve their performance. That's the way I pitch it to them. This is how we explain it. And we look and we see, okay, where were the gaps? Why am I putting you on a performance improvement plan? And what's the goal of this is to make you a better engineer, is to learn from this and see. And that works well with my teams. So it's all about building that trust. And that's what I've always tried to do, whether it's with volunteers or with engineers who are reporting to me. And it works across the board by setting those expectations appropriately and seeing how well you're doing and providing that feedback on a regular basis. That's where you get people excited.
1: Lifelong learning seems to be a key to a lot of what you do. And it also seems to be a key to sort of how you are able to look forward to see emerging trends and what's coming down the pike and preparing for that. As someone who has, like, your fingers on the pulse of technology, what is exciting you the most right now? Well, I'm looking to
0: see where we go, you know, with AR. So I don't believe in VR except for, you know, specific tasks. Okay, why? It's because I've worked on quite a few projects. And the fact that when you're wearing a VR headset, you have no idea what's actually physically around you, which means that you're at risk when you're doing it. For me, it's uncomfortable to not be able to see what I am about to run into or, you know, for those of us working in computer graphics, of course, the standard joke or prank to pull on somebody who's wearing a VR headset is to shove them when they have the headset. Of course, they're going to fall over. You know, it's too easy. And the problem has to do with the fact that you're cutting out the key source of information that you normally use to be able to navigate. I believe more in tools that will help me augment what I'm already seeing. So I like building tools that will use my existing environment and give me extra information. That's what I'm looking for. And that's where I believe the best use of this technology happens to be okay i can see in certain entertainment venues where it's a lot of fun to go and play video games with a headset on i get it but the problem is if you're wearing a headset it gets tiring very very quickly so the user experience isn't that good and i don't see that changing anytime soon what I do see is you know upcoming AR, whether it's glasses or fish tank AR, where I'm using my cell phone to get extra information about the environment that I'm in. that's where I see the biggest possible growth. That's where I think things will go. So we're you know I'm looking at various ways where we could use 3D graphics more effectively today by using AI, machine learning tools to be able to identify what my cell phone is seeing right now, okay? And I would see lots of applications where you're using this to navigate in the real world with the fact that you're connected to a much larger database of information where you get information directly about what surrounds you, okay? Those are the things that excite me the most and where I think we'll see many new innovations based on the fact that we now have the ability to run neural networks in real time on a mobile device without killing your battery. So those are the things that I'm getting very excited about.
1: I wanted to finish by asking you about young people that are interested in computer graphics or even, Mm -hmm. you know, AI, machine learning, or even research. What would be some advice that you would have?
0: Well, the key thing is to not assume that you don't know enough to be able to do it yourself. One of the things that I was doing when my kids were a little bit younger was to teach people how to do 3D graphics in JavaScript. Why? Because JavaScript exists in every browser. Everybody avail- you know, is able to go and use it. And with libraries like 3.js or Babylon.js, right now, any kid in high school has the math necessary to be able to go and start building 3D games in browser today. The power is there and it's really interesting because i saw this i had one of my sons my eldest son went oh you know went and decided to do a career move so he was working in the insurance business and was bored stiff doing that and really wanted to do something in 3d graphics so went to one of the training sessions where you do a four month project where you build something from scratch. And what he ended up doing was building a, you know, basically a tank game in JavaScript, in browser that people could use directly, built on Babylon directly. And what was amazing was he gave his demo at the end of this four month session and immediately got hired to go and do this. And the key thing is he wasn't afraid to try this. Now, the other people on his team were also excited about it, the fact that we were building a game and that they had been successful at actually building a fairly compelling game. I was very much impressed at what he did. And the idea was he wasn't afraid to try. So that's what I would suggest to people try it out. The tools, you don't need to have a $100,000 silicon graphics machine. To be able to do computer graphics today, you can do it on any computer. Any computer that you using, any Mac, any PC, it doesn't matter. Go try it. Build yourself a challenge. Say, I'm going to build a game. And try it and see. And it's easier than people think.
1: And that was our conversation with Alain Chesnay. You can find out more about Alain's work at his website, alainchesnay.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.